You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast, hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence, the investment research arm of Bloomberg LP. In this podcast series, we talk about the intersection of business, policy, and law. My name is Holly Frome. I'm an analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering consumer, industrials, and healthcare litigation. Today's podcast will focus on mass tort litigation presently winding its way through the courts. I'm delighted to be joined today by Joseph Fantini of Rosen Injury Lawyers. He is the managing attorney for Rosen's Mass Tort Department. And just as a disclaimer, Mr. Fantini is an attorney representing plaintiffs in some of the cases we will be discussing today. Joe, would you please, thank you for being here. Would you please tell us a little bit about your background and what you do at Rosen? Good morning. Thanks very much for having me on here. I'm excited to discuss all the things here, Mass Tort. So as you mentioned, I'm the managing partner at Rosen Injury Lawyers. We're a firm that specializes in mass torts. So our office here only handles mass torts, and we're currently involved in a number of different ones, including some we're discussing today. But uh, by way of background, I attended law school at uh, Widener University in Delaware, and during that time, I had the chance to clerk for the Honorable Judge New in Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas. So Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas is one of the few state courts in the country that handles mass torts. So during that time, when Judge New was overseeing the complex litigation section, I had my first exposure to mass torts. So I got the opportunity to interact with plaintiff and defense counsel and see how mass tort really worked. After I graduated from law school, I worked for an international insurance defense firm, Wilson Elser, where I focused my practice on product liability cases, but I had the opportunity to defend some companies in mass tort cases pending in Philadelphia and also in federal court. After about three years defending companies, I switched sides and went over to the plaintiff side and joined a large predominant Philadelphia-based firm called Annapol Weiss. Over at Annapol, 
I worked there for approximately six years and really learned the ins and outs of mass torts and worked on a number of dockets from exception to settlement. I had a great opportunity there to work hand in hand with leadership um, and learn really how mass tort work. Um, in 2018, I joined the Rosen Law Firm and launched the mass tort practice. Rosen Law Firm has a large securities class action, but we decided to open a second practice that focused solely on mass torts. So over the last six years or so, I've been able to grow the practice and the firm uh, to what it is here today. Great. Thank you. We're really lucky to have you today because you don't always you don't always get an attorney who's practiced on both sides of the aisle, but it sounds like you have. So, um, you know, we know that mass torts can pose serious risks to companies. In general, when you're analyzing whether to take a case um, as a as a plaintiff's attorney, what would you, make you decide to take on certain cases and what would persuade you to avoid certain cases? Yeah, that's a really good question. And there's maybe 10 to 12 factors we look at in each different mass tort before we get involved. Uh, we want to make sure that it's a litigation that we're passionate about because we're going to be in there for a long fight and we're going to invest a significant amount of our resources. Uh, we also want to make sure it's it's a case that's going to have a big impact and that we're going to be able to help as many people as possible. And we want to be able to bring about change. And the way you do that is to get involved in some of these mass torts. So um, when we start investigating and looking into the mass tort, the most important factor for us is science. We want to know what studies are out there, what studies are out there that support our position and then also ones that go against our position. We really want to look at how many studies there are. Um, and then once we get a handle on that, what our firm typically does is we'll retain our own expert that specializes in that area. So it could be an oncologist, it could be an epidemiologist, whatever type of experts needed for us to really get a good feel about the strengths and weaknesses of the case up front before we start acquiring clients. That's what we do. Next, after we get the good understanding of the, the science, we look at the total potential number of individuals impacted. So we're looking at here at the numerosity of the potential number of plaintiffs that come forward. My experience has showed me somewhere between eight to 10% of injured claimants come forward so we want to make sure that there's enough plaintiffs out there for us to really make an impact. Another factor that we look at and is really important is the viability of the defendant. We want to know whether or not this defendant has the ability to satisfy a large judgment or engage in a settlement because mistotes typically resolve for hundreds of millions of dollars or even billions of dollars. So those three factors are usually the most important ones that we're looking at uh, when we make a decision whether or not to get involved in a mass court. Okay, thanks. Um, so when, uh, when you're looking at numerosity, I, I understand that you there's like an 8 to 10% response rate. Is the 8 to 10% response rate, is that people who will, you know, call you after they find out about this issue or are those people who are actually will actually decide to sue yeah so eight eight to ten percent would be the the percentage of the in, injured individuals that come forward 
So I've seen some other studies that go up to 20%, but say there were 100 people injured by this product. Uh, typically, they may not be aware of the association between this medication or this medical device or this consumer product. So it's that advertisement that makes them aware because it's different from a situation in a traditional personal injury case where you get in a car accident and you break your back. You know that's from the car accident. So here we have to do a lot of education and let the plaintiffs know, you know, you aren't the only person that this happened to, there are other people. So we usually find that for every 100 people that were injured by this product, about 10% of them come forward and want to assert a claim. Interesting. Interesting. Um, are there cases that are riskier than others? And what would you describe as a risky case to take on? Yeah, some of something that would make a case riskier would be, you know, if the science is unsettled. So when we have maybe an even number of articles uh, on each side saying something in favor of the plaintiff's position and something in favor of the defendant's position, that, that can make it riskier. Also, um, if it's kind of a new problem, a new issue that's coming to the forefront, and there isn't a lot of science out there, if there haven't been a lot of studies, that, that makes it risky. Um, and that can give us pause before we get involved. Um, you know, another thing that we look at a lot and really factors into our decision is the, the ability of the defendants to, to pay because a lot of these cases could potentially go into the bankruptcy, which could add years on to the length of the litigation, but then it could also result in the plaintiffs getting a reduced amount. So before we get involved, um, we really spend a lot of time focusing on those because without the science, we can't get over um, and pass Daubert and, and everything would be for a loss. So those are the two most uh, important factors I'd say that we look at before we get involved. Got it. So I understand you're involved in a number of mass torts. I'd like to ask you some questions about specific cases, starting with Vantac. If any of the listeners don't know, lawsuits were filed after a lab reported results finding that an ingredient in Zantac called ranitidine degrades into a known carcinogen under certain storage conditions or an alleged carcinogen under certain storage conditions. Cases were filed in federal and state court. There were at one point, I think, about 150,000 claims on a federal registry. The federal court dismissed the cases in 4Q um, after the judge found experts couldn't pass the Daubert standard, which assesses the reliability of experts. I wanted to know, Joe, if you could explain the judge's ruling and her stated reasoning as to why she barred the experts. Yeah, so as you mentioned, this was a very large mass tort, and there were 150,000 cases on the registry. And basically what the registry was, was a mechanism for us to put cases um, to toll them and exchange information with the defendants before officially filing them. So what happened was in the spring of 2020, the FDA requested that all manufacturers voluntarily recall their products and cease further sales. All of them complied with that. And then almost instantaneously, Lawsuits started getting filed, and then an MDL got formed before Judge Robinson Rosenberg of the Southern District of Florida. Um, and basically, the plaintiffs, we, we had relied heavily upon information from a private company was called Valashore. 
And basically, Balashor had theorized that the ranitidine um, had the potential to degrade into carcinogen known as NDMA. And through her analysis, Judge Rosenberg found that the testing that Balashor did to reach its conclusion wasn't proper. Um, she found that the, the temperature that it was raised to, that Balashor raised to, uh, was way above the temperature in the human. Um, and then also questioned Balashur's testing the ranitidine reaction to salt, which again, she found was the salt content was way higher than what was found in the human. Um, so those kind of caused some hurdles for us. And then Judge Rosenberg faulted the, the plaintiffs for relying upon the Balashur laboratory results and then also another study that came out from Stanford around that same time. But after the issues with the Balashore laboratory studies and potentially some issues with the equipment that they used, the Stanford study ended up um, being re retracted by the authors as well. So throughout her analysis, um, Judge Rosenberg noted that only the scientists in this litigation, they are the only people that have come forward and concluded that ranitidine causes cancer. And even though the FDA have withdrawn it from the market, which is a very unusual step, that alone isn't going to be enough for us to get over the hurdle and get the experts admitted and pass Daubert. And Judge Rosenberg found that all of the experts that were put forward by plaintiffs um, utilized unreliable methodologies, and there was a lack of documentations on how the experiments were conducted, um, a lack of statistical significance, a lack of internal consistency, objective, and science-based standards for the evaluation of the data. Because what ended up happening was the plaintiffs relied a lot upon their own uh, epidemiologists who conducted studies and then made some opinions and the judge found that that type of methodology isn't the type that was consistent within the scientific community and therefore ended up excluding all of the plaintiff expert it was a very well written and well reasoned 300 page uh Daubert opinion and because all of the experts got excluded basically summary judgment ended up getting granted in favor of the defendants. So all of the cases that ended up staying in the MDL, uh, and so those were cases where there was um, diversity between a plaintiff and the defendant, they all ended up getting kicked out and uh, judgment got entered in favor of the defendants for all of those cases, which ended up being about 40 or 50,000 of them. Wow. Okay. Um, so what do you think the chances are of reversal on appeal? I mean, I, I mean, I should preface that, that it's going, it's going to be appealed. And I think a notice of appeals have been filed. So um, what do you think the chances are of reversing that ruling? Yeah, that that's correct. The, the notice of appeal has been filed for the 11th circuit. Um, and usually in the 11th circuit, the time from the notice of appeal to decision is about a year. So around this time next year, we'll have a better idea. But 
overall, the success rate in state and federal courts is anywhere between 7 and 20 percent. And the 11th Circuit in particular, which was established in 1981 and has jurisdiction over federal courts in the southeastern states of Alabama, Georgia, and Florida, where we are, usually something like this has a uh, an average appeal success rate of somewhere 7%. So although I think there's some good arguments being made, again, I'm on the plaintiff side and represent these clients. Um, if we're just looking at the statistics of it, we have about a 7% chance of success on this appeal. Got it. So I understand there are about 80,000 state cases. The vast majority of them are in Delaware State Court. Some are in California and there are smattering in other jurisdictions as well. What do you think the impact of that federal court decision is on a court's handling the state cases? Yeah, so the largest docket is Delaware right now. There's a little over 70,000 cases filed and pending there. Uh, we just recently served our expert reports and the experts' depositions for the plaintiff and defense experts are going to be starting here in October 2023. We're looking uh, to have an argument on the experts in the beginning of 2024, and I would expect the decision sometime um, in the first quarter of 2024. What is going on in Delaware is we're, we're no longer only accepting the top five designated cancers that were identified by leadership in the MDL. So, so we're actually pursuing a larger, larger body of cancers and we're looking at 10 different cancers. And so obviously the Judge Rosenberg's opinion from the MDL was not in favor of plaintiffs. And so what we did is we tried to learn from that decision. We identified the different areas where Judge Rosenberg's faulted the plaintiffs and our plaintiffs experts and tried to address that with new experts that we've retained and subsequent to the MDL being formed and the expert ruling there, which was about a year ago, um, there have been additional studies that have come down. So we we think um, that we, we're going to be successful getting some of these experts passed. Um, the expert ruling here in the beginning of 2024 and how we're going to do it is kind of learn by maybe some of the critiques Judd Rosenberg had for us and then also rely upon different experts who are certainly qualified and focusing more on their methodology to make sure that the Delaware judge doesn't have an issue with that. Got it. So um, so in the, in the multi-district litigation that was in Florida, that was before the federal court, they only pursued five cancers. Is that correct? That's correct. There were only five in the MDL. Got it. And then how many um, how many cases were in, in Delaware? You said, I, I didn't quite hear that. Yeah, there's a little over 70,000 cases currently pending. Got it. Um, and then you did say that some of the experts, are, are all the experts different that, that, you're, you'd be that will be presented to the Delaware judge or are just some of them? I, I believe they're all new experts. I know for certain at least 90, 95% are maybe some on regulatory crossover, but we we do have a whole new docket of experts there. Got it. And so um, that brings me to my next question. A March 23rd ruling by a California judge presiding over one of the state cases allowed a Zantac um, bladder cancer case to proceed to trial. 
um, that case eventually settled. Why do you think the California judge diverged from the federal court ruling? And what read through, if any, does this have in the Delaware cases? Yeah, so like you mentioned, that was a the first case to go forward in California, where that's the the second largest state court docket. There's several thousand cases there, I believe about 3,000. And this specific case was a bladder cancer case. And so Judge Grillo, who was overseeing it there, uh, noted that the MDL order was only an unpublished decision by a federal trial court, and it's not controlling on matters of state court law. So even though the California state court and the federal court states are analogous uh, in the standards they apply to the expert, the MDL order wasn't dispositive. So Judge Grillo noted that the plaintiffs had come forward with a whole new docket of experts as well, and those were to be considered in California. And so what we ended up, the attorneys ended up doing there in California is there were nine new experts that came forward. And ultimately, um, the majority of them got through 100%. And then there were two or three experts that a portion of their testimony got excluded. But we had a pharmacologist, a bioanalytic chemist. We had uh, an oncologist. We had a chemist. We had two medical oncologists on specific causation and regulatory. So we were happy to see that Judge Grillo, um, even though we had the un unfortunate MDL ruling, Judge Grillo looked at these experts individually, evaluated them, evaluated the methodology, which again, we think strong, um, and we're using those similar type of tactics in Delaware. So based upon this new decision in California, the more recent one from March of 2023, we, we feel in a, a little bit better and and optimistic about some of the experts getting through in Delaware. Interesting. Um, so I'm going to shift gears a little bit, um, shift from Zantac to um, Roundup litigation. Uh, by way of background, another company facing thousands of product liability claims is Monsanto with respect to its weed killer Roundup. Monsanto faced over 100,000 lawsuits alleging its weed killer causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. It entered into agreements to resolve about 100,000 cases for around $11 billion, but it's estimated that there are still somewhere between 40 to 50,000 cases left. Joe, why do you think these the, the 40 to 50,000, why, why do you think these cases have not settled yet? That's a great question, then. What happened when the Roundup litigation here is the the defendants have been unable to get finality on the cases that are out there. And so usually when the defendants are in a mass tort and able to settle a large group of cases, they do so because they no longer face exposure going forward. So we're talking about Zantac earlier. Because the product was withdrawn from the market, that's going to be the trigger date uh, of the statute of limitations beginning to run. Similar, like you see going on right now in Camp Lejeune, uh, that date that the act got put in place in August of 2022, that starts a two-year window. Whereas in Roundup, we still today have plaintiffs coming forward that were just recently diagnosed. 
And because there's a latency period of a number of years, even though the defendant settled these 100,000 cases two years or so, there's somebody that could have been using Roundup in between that time period and just get diagnosed today, to get diagnosed tomorrow, or end up getting diagnosed in two or three years. So because the product is still on the market, um, they're facing challenges of bringing this lawsuit to a complete close. So what they did is they, they no longer sell the traditional Roundup that me and you know to everyday consumers. Um, so that was a tactic that they began to implement uh, to hopefully bring the litigation to an end from their perspective. Got it. Um, so how do you think, you know, give, given that issue, how do you see this litigation playing out over the next year or so? There, there were a lot of firms that did settle their dockets and were included in that 100,000. But like you said, there's still 40,000 plus cases still out there. A lot of lawsuits that are pending. So how I see it playing out is there's going to be a number of trials. There's going to be trials going on in Missouri, where the defendant's headquarters there's also uh, upcoming bellwether trial starting here in October of 2023 in Philadelphia with a very aggressive trial schedule through the first quarter. So I anticipate over the next six months or so, we'll, we'll have maybe between half a dozen to 10 uh, jury verdicts. And then that will really let us know um, what the value of these cases are. And then recently, um, there was a new general counsel that that joined uh, in this summer. So I think he's getting a feel for the litigation and what to expect going forward. But I envision that a lot of uh, jury verdicts are going to come out in the coming months. And then based upon that, we'll have an idea of what the cases are worth. And then I would imagine by the end of 2024, most of these cases uh, are in some sort of settlement posture. Got it. Um, interesting. Another company facing a number of personal injury cases is Philips. The litigation against it, Philips is related to we called CPAP and BPAP machines used for sleep apnea. And there are allegations that the foam used in the machine degrades and could cause injury, including cancer. One transcript from July of 2022 said that about 60,000 people had entered into tolling agreements. Do you think a settlement in this case would be easier to achieve than, say, in glyphosate litigation? And if so, why? I, I think a settlement's definitely going to be a lot easier. And the reason is because there's finality. Um, similar to what happened with Zantac when there was the recall, Philips here recalled the product. Um, so that, that started the trigger for the statute of limitations. And everybody who used it, was contacted, they're aware of these potential problems. So by starting this tolling agreement, um, we, my firm represents lots of people in this case, but basically you enter into the tolling agreement and you exchange information with the defendants at this junction where you provide them information about what device that they use, what time period, what are their injuries. Um, so the defendants here are able to get their arms around how many total plaintiffs are there, What's the total exposure going to be to be able to come up with some sort of resolution? I envision this case will resolve in a global settlement where we're still fighting and going over. And there needs to be Daubert rulings on which cases and which cancers end up being compensable. 
but um that's to be played out i do anticipate that this case will get resolved here uh they were called the product there's a lot of seriously injured people it they've indicated they do want to ultimately you know resolve these cases so i anticipate a global settlement maybe before the end of 2024 or in the early part of 2025. interesting um another litigation that's going on a multi-district litigation in a really relatively early stage um, pending in federal court in the southern district of new york is related to um a set of minifene and tylenol um an ingredient in tylenol and the claim is that the ingredient if taken during pregnancy causes autism um Daubert motions are being briefed with a hearing set for december can joe can you discuss generally what's happened so far in the litigation right so this is uh an mdl that was only recently formed um and basically it was about a year ago that it was moved to the southern district of new york before judge cott and so what's happened in this litigation initially when the mdl was formed about a year ago there was 66 cases that got transferred and then slowly over the last year the cases have trickled in but you haven't seen an explosion of the docket that we typically see and right now as of maybe last week there was only 265 cases so 200 cases added in a year but what's happening is firms like my own firm we're investigating these cases and we're really looking at the science and trying to get a better feel about whether or not these autism injury cases are going to be able to go forward, whether or not the um, ADHD cases are going to be able to go forward. So this is kind of newer litigation, but the judge has been really aggressive in pushing it forward to a Daubert decision. Uh, originally indicated there'd be a decision by the end of the year. I'm not sure if that's still going to hold, but we should have a decision by the first quarter of 2024. And in the meantime, we've been able to conduct discovery. We've gotten you know, millions of pages. We've conducted a number of depositions. Um, so we're doing all the background work needed, but this case is really all gonna hinge on and depend on the outcome of the Daubert rulings, which we expect in anywhere from three to six months. Got it. So recently the court asked for the FDA's opinion as to the adequacy of the current warning on over-the-counter acetaminophen products, the FDA declined to issue a statement recently. What do you think the impact is, if any, of that declination? That, that had a big impact on the litigation because had the FDA come in and offered an opinion, it could have ended the lawsuit because what happened was Judge Cott... Um, asked the FDA to review the proposed labels and wanted the FDA to opine on should the plaintiff's proposed warning be added to the labels and does the science warrants warrant adding such a warning to the label. So had the FDA come out and said they don't believe that plaintiff's proposed warning needed to be added to the label and there's no science supporting it, that could have ended the litigation right there. We would have still gone forward with Daubert, but it would have been a definitely uh, huge burden for us to overcome. So by the FDA declining, I think it still leaves it open to plaintiff being successful here. And it's all just gonna come on 
and come down to the success of the the Dalbert motions. So when you said the proposed warning, just by way of background, um, the court asked plaintiffs to provide an example of a warning that they think would be adequate. Is, is that typical? That that isn't typical. That that's something that's very uncommon, and the adequacy of the warnings and the specific language that's something we we see way later in the litigation. Um, when we get to our experts. So having the FDA come in and offer their opinion, that's not something we usually see in any sort of mass tort. Is it typical for a court presiding over this type of case to request the opinion of the FDA or the, whatever regulatory body has authority? Again, that, that, that's not a typical uh, occurrence. That That's something we rarely, if ever, see. So we were a little bit uh, surprised by that, but um, going forward, we, we don't expect to see that in many mass torts going forward here. Got it. Do you, do you think there's any significance to these requests by the court? I, I understand why Judge Cott did it. Uh, the judge wanted to really focus in what are the real issues in this case. So this is, you know, a failure to warn and a defective design case. So by honing in and making the plaintiffs up front identify what warning uh, we thought should be added, it lets the experts really focus in on this specific area and also let us really focus in during regular fact discovery. Got it. And so um, shifting to another litigation, we saw 3M earplug litigation. 3M was sued by you know, over uh, 200,000 uh, veterans who said that um, the earplugs caused uh, the ear, earplugs caused hearing loss or tinnitus. Uh, settlement of $6 billion was announced in late August. You've commented that you don't think plaintiff's lawyers should take on new cases in this litigation. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, so my firm's not accepting new cases. I don't think I wouldn't recommend for any other firm to do that as well. But basically what happened was this litigation all got started years ago. Um, back in 2015 or 16, there was a whistleblower claim that first brought our attention to this potential litigation. And then we've been able to investigate. And then this MDL was, was formed. And then as part of the MDL, it was on the forefront of the news. A lot of veterans were aware. The VA was giving information to them. Other people that they had worked with um, became aware. And then there was a, a large number of bellwether trials. I believe there were 16 in total conducted, and the results were all over the news. So in this litigation, uh, there's a strong argument to be made by the defendants that the statute of limitation ran. Even when you're relying upon the discovery rule, uh, when you knew or should have known your injuries were related because this litigation was so prevalent, it would be hard for any plaintiff to come forward and say, hey, I just found out about this now. I want to pursue a claim. So the defendants in this case, 3M, they did a good job uh, bringing about the finality of the litigation. And that's why we we're able to get this $6 billion settlement because they had an understanding of all the plaintiffs that were out there how many were going to come forward, and that ultimately led to this settlement here. 
Interesting. Interesting. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Joe, and sharing your insights. We'll certainly be watching these litigations in the future, and it'll be interesting to see what happens in these cases. Thanks for having me. It was great talking with you. Of course. Thank you. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.